Accessibility Accelerator, the podcast featuring global influencers in accessibility, inclusion, and universal design. Here's your host, Jamie Lassner. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Accessibility Accelerator, the podcast. This morning, I have a, I would say by now, a cherished friend, Rebecca Alexander, who is an author, psychotherapist, uh, disability rights advocate. Uh, she is everything as far as I'm concerned. Uh, every time I hear from my good friends and, and from her what she's up to, it so always uh, uh, amazes me. Uh, first of all, hello, Rebecca. And secondly, tell us a little about yourself uh, growing up uh, and uh, where you stand now, and then we'll talk a little more. Sure. Well, hi, Jamie. Uh, I'm always thrilled when you invite me to be a guest for anything that you are hosting. So it's absolutely a pleasure to be with you. Uh, the feeling is mutual. So I am 44 years old. I am a psychotherapist in New York City. I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay. And when I was 12, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa or RP, which is one of the leading genetic causes of blindness. And later when I was about 18, 19, I was further diagnosed with something called Usher syndrome. Usher syndrome is the leading genetic cause of combined deafness and blindness in the US and around the world. And the type of Usher syndrome I have, there are three types. A person with Usher syndrome type one is born completely deaf and they're progressively losing their vision. Their vision loss tends to have a more rapid decline and they also experience issues with balance. A person with Usher syndrome type two generally has a specific amount of hearing loss when they're born and requires hearing aids or assistive listening devices, and they're progressively losing their vision. Generally, they don't experience balance issues. And a person with Usher syndrome type three, what I have experiences the mildest onset of both progressive vision and hearing loss and also has balance issues. So the type of Usher syndrome I have is an Ashkenazi genetic disorder. Yeah. So I am talking to you and you're obviously hearing me. Uh, how is that taking place? So I am cochlear implanted. I was actually very fortunate to have had relatively normal hearing when I was a child. I always watched TV sort of funny out of the side of my left eye. And we later came to realize that it wasn't just a funny quirk. My left ear was my better ear. So I would cock my left ear forward to be able to hear the television. But uh, over time, as my hearing loss progressed, I became a candidate for a cochlear implant. And I was an ideal candidate because I had learned how to hear naturally. And uh, at some point, my hearing loss was so significant that they said that I would benefit from getting cochlear implanted. So without them, I am completely deaf. I'm signing to you right now, which I know no one can see. But without them, I'm completely deaf. Nobody sleeps better than I do in New York City. That is for certain. <laughs> <laughs> And That's with them, I'm, yeah. So with them, I'm able to communicate with my hearing and sighted friends, but my hearing friends, yeah. So w when we put this podcast out, uh, we will also share your uh, amazing social media as well, because we know you are an accomplished athlete. We know that you've uh -huh. uh, swam across uh, Alcatraz to the shore. You've done Mount Kilimanjaro. You've done marathons. Uh, quite extraordinary. So when you first uh, were diagnosed with ushers, how did people communicate with you? So when I was first diagnosed, I 
really communicated with people like a hearing, any other hearing sighted person. I just said a, what a lot more. Um, and so it was actually, you know, with any type of condition that you get diagnosed with and particularly degenerative conditions, there's a whole process. And let me remind you, I'm a mental health provider. So I think that one of the things that we hear so much about are the physical implications of what it means to live with a disability and not as much about the mental health implications of living with a disability. So for me, I felt like people were communicating with me to the best of their ability. Oftentimes they needed to be facing me. I needed to be able to read their lips as well as hear them. And over time, I would find myself, let's say out to dinner with family or friends and I would be completely tuned out or I would notice that I just wasn't really following the conversation. And over time when phones became a thing, I started playing Tetris at the table and people would always get so upset, but it was my way of just feeling like I was, I had some control over. And you use sign language as well. Yes. So I use sign language and then later I learned tactile sign language. And then now more recently I have been learning pro tactile, which is its so that's- own. Yeah. Which is the and that's and that's really, I mean, besides wanting to see you and and talk to you, that's what I what I want to uh, focus on now. Which um, I've watched the video, which I will share, mm-hmm. uh, the PBS vi- uh, video that you were the host of, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I was nothing short of blown away. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, to be uh, honest with you. I didn't get the whole thing. I didn't understand how it's possible for somebody to understand who doesn't see and doesn't hear. So I know that this 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 uh, protactile language started at, you know about ten or fifteen years ago, and now has become uh, more known and more. And now, obviously, when uh, Rebecca Alexander gets involved, it's really going to become known. Uh, but can you run us through what exact how it came about, how it works, and then I think when what people watch the video, they'll get more of a sense of it. But for those of us, i.e., me, um, can you explain how it works and a the concept of the uh, language itself, and you as the recipient of the language? And I've seen you and watched you, and it's amazing. Um, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? What are you doing? And seeing and hearing, I mean by the language uh, interpreting to you. Yeah, so so pro-tactile actually began around 2008 in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area, where there is a particularly large demographic of deafblind people. And we're talking capital D deafblind, meaning these are people generally who were raised in the deaf community and progressively losing their vision or simply were, were born deafblind. So there are two women, Elisa Nuccio and AJ Granda, and they are both deafblind educators and researchers and very well educated. And they came to realize that communication among people who are deafblind was quite limited. And not only was it quite limited among themselves because it required with more than one person, you really couldn't communicate. And oftentimes it required an interpreter if you wanted to communicate with somebody else, or certainly if you wanted to to communicate with more than one other person, 
when you think about hearing sighted people standing in a small circle communicating, there's a lot of back and forth and communication that just kind of comes and goes. And there's a, a real conversation that's happening. It's not just between two people. It could be among three people, four people, five people. And so the deafblind community was trying to figure out, well, wait a second, when we are removed from the actual primary conversation through an interpreter, we lose our sense of agency and we lose our ability to communicate directly that there's almost like a power imbalance, that when you rely on somebody else to tell you what the information is in the room or that's being shared with you, you are not getting it firsthand. You're getting it from somebody else. And it's also based on their, whether it's their opinions or their perception. And so AJ Granda and Yulisa Nuccio created, started creating this language. That is, it's not just like, like, you know, making up a language with a sibling. It's a language that is rooted in grammar and syntax and has uh, a lot of research that's been conducted to really create foundational information. It's based on contact space, which is different than ASL or American Sign Language. And that is that American Sign Language is based in airspace. So for example, and I know that people are listening to this, so it's going to be hard for them to maybe understand, but I'm signing as I'm speaking now, which is why my voice sounds a little bit different. But if I'm signing and I'm trying to show a person that the store they want to go for go to is three or four blocks away. I may physically show them with my hands about the distance that it is physically using airspace. But if you're someone who's deafblind and you can't conceptualize things based on what it looks like, that is distance is perceived much differently if you don't have rely on vision. So they use contact space. So for instance, right now I'm taking my pointer finger and I'm bringing it, my right pointer finger to my left wrist. And if I'm showing you that we're going somewhere that's about three blocks away, I will take that pointer finger and move it three times to my elbow. So it's a distance, but it's not that far. It's about three blocks away. Now, if it's really far, I'll bring my pointer finger to my shoulder, and that gives you a sense that we have a far way to go, to walk. It's, it's difficult to explain without showing, but really what it relies on is not airspace, but contact space, because what we also found is that people who rely on tactile sign language, which is essentially American Sign Language just using hands, we're still using airspace and that oftentimes people lose up to about 70 percent of what's being signed to them because the information that's being shared is not based in a system that is reliable for people who are deafblind so in watching the videos and, and people will see these videos there was there was a couple of things that struck me the first question is um the understanding of personal space mm -hmm. uh, I found not not uncomfortable, but because I'm not in that position, I'm not uh, deaf blind. But the idea you're literally sitting in a triangle, knee to knee, and one one place of the body is to receive, let's say, the message, and the other is to communicate the message. Mm -hmm. How how did this language come about? From what it seems, there it has become quite sophisticated. Yes. 
Yeah, and it's just like any language, you know, we don't hear about new languages being developed the way that they were, you know, I mean, centuries ago, or we, we the languages evolve and certainly they develop, you know, slang and different types of dialects. But the actual development of a language itself is, is quite unusual these days. So when you see someone, for instance, who is deafblind, the same way that you would show someone who is sighted and hearing like a child, what is appropriate touch and what is not appropriate touch, the same can be shown to a deafblind child. You can, can give them a sense of what is appropriate and what's not, not appropriate. All of the contact space is based on the arms and sort of the shoulders, uh, the back, the, the legs. There's, and so, yes, I know that for many people, particularly in the day and age we live in, where touch is incredibly taboo and where we, you know, people are, are very easily triggered and have so many different things that they're not comfortable with. We, we are looking at this through the lens of people who are hearing and sighted, who adhere to hearing sighted norms. And it's very difficult to sort of throw that out the window and try to imagine how you would connect with others, how you would connect with your environment if you did not have your vision or your hearing to rely on. So I'm showing you now that when someone is signing to me, I will be holding their hand in what I can only describe as like a very gentle, I love you ASL sign. And mm -hmm. so I'm holding their hands as they're signing. And as they're signing to me, my hand is on their forearm and I'm following them by tapping on their hand with my, on their, forearm with my hand to let them know, yes, I'm following, or it's almost like you're, you know, wiping away something to say no. Um, and so there's, there's a whole, and there's a whole communication system. We call it your, the interlocutor, who is the person that you are signing with, you're communicating with. Right, right. Um, I saw that on the video. That was, that was yeah. interesting. The second question that I had is, um, let's take you as an example. Uh, you go you go out to dinner with five people mm -hmm. uh, within this group. How do you communicate communicate amongst five people? Because I saw that three basically was, uh, and in in no way do I want to belittle this, but it was almost like playing uh, four sets of drums. You were playing the other people's legs and the other people's mm -hmm. two arms, so it was a sort of an easy way to at least get the touch. But when you're sitting five in a room. How does how does uh, this language work? Well, that's interesting. I mean, if you think about five people in a room uh, communicating, everybody can't be speaking at once. So you have someone who shares. And so, for instance, when I'm communicating with two people, I'm doing the signs in both hands. So five people is is a bit difficult and it does oftentimes require more uh, interpreters. But again, it, it's so hard to think about this language from a place that is not based in hearing sighted norms. So if, for instance, someone is describing something, the communication, we communicate so quickly. And oftentimes I even have patients I work with teenagers who communicate so fast. I don't even know if they're speaking English because mm -hmm. they're just, you know, speaking so quickly. One of the things that I really love about being with the pro-tactile community is that communication is really valued. It's really important. And people aren't just sort of saying things or, you know, um, making small talk. 
for the sake of just filling up empty space. There is much more intention and there is a much more sort of forward and direct nature to how people communicate. So it almost feels like it's sort of trimming the fat, so to speak, on so much of the ways in which you know, other communities that don't rely on touch communicate. So if mm -hmm. someone was communicating with three or four people, if something was particularly important and others wanted to know, they may say, one second, I want to share this with Roberto. And then they'll share it and then we'll we'll continue. Um, yeah, but it, it is um, it's a it's an incredibly robust and vibrant language, as, as you saw. So yeah. so one of the things and I'm going to say thank you publicly is uh, we try to do sensitivity training. Uh, uh, and you just gave me an incredible lesson, which I often forget is I am looking at it from a perspective of someone who can see and can hear. Mm -hmm. uh, because the truth is when I am in a restaurant, no five people are talking and I'm thinking, well, she's right. No five people are talking at the same time. Yeah. And if you want to pass the message down, you can pass the message down mm -hmm. um, and so on. Now, I know that you, uh, from, from what you shared with me on emails and, and in our discussions, you um, you were very insistent on, in a nice way, not in a bad way, to host this and and, and because you wanted to make this more well known. Mm -hmm. um, what is it about this language that you see that's really, really going to make a difference? Wow. So there are so many ways in which I think this language will make a difference. We, it, when we think about people with disabilities, what are some of the first adjectives or ideas that come to mind in terms of how they are assimilated into mainstream society. And oftentimes they're not. It is this constant up, well, uphill battle of trying to, you know, not only get a space at the table where we can be accommodated, but it's even access to the building to get to the table. And for this language, when you have people who are deafblind who have had to rely on language that was developed not by people who are deafblind, but by people who are hearing sighted, it means that there is, there is again, a power difference. So that the people who have vision and hearing have a greater have greater access to information and therefore they dilute that information or they pass that information on to the deafblind person and that deafblind person is making a decision based on what's been shared with them not on their real lived experience we don't need people to do things for us or to to make decisions for us or to communicate for us we just need access to the information to be able to share our opinion ourselves. And so for instance, for, if a deafblind person is accessing, let's say a coffee shop, they're going to the coffee shop and they're going to take an order. They're not interpreting to the interpreter what it is that they want. Now let's assume that the person behind the counter is also deafblind. They are approaching that counter in what we call co-presence, meaning I am recognizing that there is a counter here and I'm holding your hand and you are also recognizing that there is a counter here and that there are candies to the left of us and there are coffee cups to the right of us. And so you are getting access to what would normally be considered privileged information based on the ability to see 
And the privileged information comes with the ability to both be touching these various environmental spaces at the same time. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. I am definitely looking forward to sharing this uh, this special that you uh, that you hosted. Um, just to go back a couple of years, I had the opportunity to read your book, uh, Not Fade Away, and I highly recommend it. It's an incredible book. And you shared that it's now in the process of becoming possibly a motion picture. Mm-hmm. There's nobody who can star for instead of you. You are you going to star in it? I mean, you are you're just perfect for it. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, this is it's been a journey. I think that COVID certainly put um, and now the the writer strike. There's been a lot of interesting things that have happened. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, but. I think one of the things that I've seen is that from the beginning, when this was, you know, they bought the rights to this in 2015, I think, and now we're 2023. And it has taken on many different iterations, but I'm not sure how I feel about it moving forward because the more over the past almost 10 years, you know, eight years, I have become so much more well versed in the disability community, in the deafblind community, and in experiencing what it means to be a person with a disability in the world today. And I want to be sure that the representation is authentic. I want to be sure that the voices that are used are used in such a way that it amplifies and lifts up the lens of people who are not in the mainstream. And so that's been, it's been tricky. And it'll be interesting to see how this continues to evolve. Uh, it's, it, I, I, and I hope it evolves well. I know that uh, obviously the the last 10 years also, as you sh- taught us today, language itself has uh, developed tremendously. So that's uh, yeah. an important piece. Um, and then one of the things that I want to do uh, to close is one of the aspects that we do is sensitivity training. Mm. Um, and you are a psychotherapist, a very successful psychotherapist. Um, what is it that we, those who uh, do not have visible disabilities or invisible disabilities, can do to um, minimize the psychological aspects that can affect a person with a disability? Um, we talk about how to welcome people, how to include them, how not to look at the disability, but look at the person instead. Um, mm-hmm. What other things do you suggest to be more sensitive towards people with disabilities? Sure. So, you know, it's interesting. There is a term that was coined uh, by John Lee Clark, who is a very well uh, esteemed deafblind historian, poet, writer, researcher. And distancism is essentially a a form of almost like discrimination that is experienced by people who are not only deafblind, but I think who have disabilities by the mainstream world and by, in, in our case, the hearing sighted world. And that is that we learn, look, don't touch. We learn that you should give someone space that, you know, you really shouldn't lean in. And I think that oftentimes out of respect for what we believe from our own preconceived ideas as fully able-bodied or hearing sighted people, what we're doing because we believe it is 
a sign of, of respect could actually be further ostracizing or uh, creating a greater distance for people with disabilities. And so I encourage people to lean in. We don't lean into things that make us uncomfortable because we're afraid we're gonna say something wrong. We don't know how to handle the situation. And so we'd rather just relieve ourselves from that discomfort. And I wanna really encourage people to lean into that discomfort. And if you don't know something, it's okay to ask. And by the way, if you ask someone with a disability a question and you do it with good intention, for instance, I have a friend who uses a wheelchair and I asked her when we were at some event, the Disability Rights Advocates Gala, I said to her, would it be helpful to you if I were to sit down or to kneel so that you don't have to continue straining by looking up at me? Now, I was concerned that that may have seemed insensitive. I didn't know, but she knew that how I asked that I was genuinely asking her because I wanted to make sure that she was comfortable. And she said, that would be great. My neck is killing me. Now, she could have said something else that maybe was a snarky response because guess what? People with disabilities are jerks too. I mean, just because you have a disability doesn't mean that you are a charity case or that you're someone who is not capable of being or having, you know, kind of a snide or nasty uh, response as well. Yeah, so I encourage people to really lean in, to, to allow themselves to develop comfort with the discomfort. Right. Part of our, our uh, pro programs that we have run uh, were clearly, um, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, unfortunately, people don't know. And the lesson you just gave us is if you ask in a nice way, in a way of caring, in a sympathetic, empathetic way, um, you're going to get a nice answer. I mean, I've, I've been with a, a good friend who's been asked, that is the coolest wheelchair in the world. How do you get it? Hmm. Uh, that's not exactly a nice way to ask. And he answers in a snide remark. But right. if somebody comes over and says, you know, my dad just had a spinal cord injury. Can I find out a little about the wheelchair? That's a little different. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it definitely is the way we ask. And that's one of the things that we do in, in our sensitivity training at universities, at schools. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, at government levels and ambassadors that we've done at the UN, uh, which has been very, very interesting. Um, before I thank you, I thank everybody for listening today. If you've uh, listened to this podcast, which I'm sure you will, please share it with your friends. No, no, by being active advocates and learning like me from this podcast, you are part of our ripple effect to being a catalyst to make the world accessible and inclusive, especially for people with disabilities. With each step, we will empower people to live self-determined lives, enable them to work travel, study, consume with dignity, equality, and maximum independence. Rebecca, um, how do we say in modern terms? You rock. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you are just amazing. And uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accessibility Accelerator, the podcast. Be sure to follow us on all socials and join us in our effort to make the world more accessible and inclusive for all.